San Jose. Levine sat in the bar of San Jose Airport nursing a beer, waiting for his plane back to the States. Gutierrez sat beside him at a small table, not saying much. An awkward silence had fallen for the last few minutes. Gutierrez stared at Levine's backpack on the floor by his feet. It was specially constructed of a dark green Gore-Tex, with extra pockets on the outside for all the electronic gear. A pretty nice pack, Gutierrez said. Where'd you get that anyway? Looks like a thorn pack. Levine sipped his beer. It is. Nice, Gutierrez said, looking at it. What you got there in the top flap? A satellite phone? And a GPS? Boy, what won't they think of next? Pretty slick. Must have cost you... Marty, Levine said in an exasperated tone. Cut the crap. Are you going to tell me or not? Tell you what? I want to know what the hell's going on here. Richard, look. I'm sorry if you... No, Levine said, cutting him off. That was a very important specimen on that beach, Marty. And it was destroyed. I don't understand why you let this happen. Gutierrez sighed. He looked around the tourists at the other tables and said, This has to be a confidence, okay? All right. It's a big problem here. What is? There have been, uh, aberrant forms turning up on the coast every so often. It's been going on for several years now. Aberrant forms? Levine repeated, shaking his head in disbelief. That's the official term for these specimens, Gutierrez said. No one in the government is willing to be more precise. It started about five years ago. A number of animals were discovered up in the mountains, near the remote agricultural station that has grown test varieties of soybeans. Soybeans? Levine repeated. Gutierrez nodded. Apparently these animals are attracted to beans and certain grasses. The uh, the assumption is that they have to they have a great need for the uh, amino acid lysine in the diets, but nobody is really sure. Perhaps just to to have a taste for some certain crops. Marty Levine said, "I don't care if they have a taste for beer or pretzels. The only important question is, where did the animals come from?" Nobody knows, Gutierrez said. Levine let that pass for a moment. What happened to the other animals? They were all destroyed. And to my knowledge, no others were found for years afterwards. But now it seems to be starting again. In the last year, we have found the remains of four more animals, including the one you saw today. And what was done? The uh, barren forms are always destroyed, just as, just as you saw. From the beginning, the governments take every possible step to make sure that nobody finds out about it. A few years back, some North American journalists began reporting there was something wrong on one island, Isla Nublar. Menendez invited a bunch of journalists down for a special tour of the island and proceeded to fly them to the wrong island. They never knew the difference. Stuff like that. I mean, the government's very serious about this. Uh, why? They're worried. Worried? Why the hell should they be worried about? Gutierrez held up his hand, shifted in his chair, and moved closer. Disease, Richard. Disease? Yeah, Costa Rica has one of the best health care systems in the world. Gutierrez said. The epidemiologists have been tracking some weird type of encephalitis that seems to be on the, the increase, particularly along the coast. Encephalitis? On what origin? Viral? Gutierrez shook his head. No, causative agent has been found. Marty! I'm telling you, Richard, nobody knows. 
It's not a virus because antibody tires don't go up and white cell difference don't change. It's not bacteria because nothing's ever been cultured. It's a complete mystery. All the epidemiologists have know that it seems to be to affect primarily rural farmers, people who are around animals and livestock. And it's a true encephalitis. Splitting headaches, mental confusion, fever, delirium. Mortality? So far it seems to be self-limited. Lasts about three weeks. But even so, it's got the government worried. This country is dependent on tourism, Richard. Nobody wants talk of unknown diseases. So they think that the encephalitis is related to these uh, barren forms? He shrugged. Lizards carry lots, lots of viral diseases, Gutierrez said. They're a known vector, so it's not unreasonable. There might be a connection. But you said this isn't a viral disease. Whatever it is, I think it's related, Levine said. All the more reason to find out where these lizards are coming from. Surely they must have searched. <laughs> searched, Gutierrez said with a laugh. Of course they're searched. They've gone over every square inch of this country again and again. They've sent a dozen of search parties. I've even led one myself. They've done aerial surveys. They've had over overflights of the jungle. They've had overflights of the offshore islands. That in itself is a big job. There are quite a few islands, you know, particularly along the west coast. Hell, they've even searched the ones that have been privately owned. Are there uh, privately owned islands? Levine asked. A few. Three or four, like Isla Nublar. It was leased to an American company in Gem for years. But you said all the islands have been searched. Thoroughly searched, nothing there. And the others? Well, let's see, Gutierrez said, ticking them off of his fingers. There was a. There was Isla Talamanca on the east coast. They got a Club Med there. There's Sorner on the west coast. It's leased to a German mining company. And there's a Morazan up north. It's actually owned by a wealthy uh, Costa Rican family. Uh, maybe another island I've forgotten about. And the such has found what? Nothing, Gutierrez said. They found nothing at all. So the assumption is that the animals are coming from some location deep in the jungle. And that's why we haven't been able to find it so far. Levine grunted. In that case, lots of luck. I know, Gutierrez said. Rainforest is incredibly good environment for concealment. A search party could pass within ten yards of a large animal and never see it. And even the most advanced remote sensing technology doesn't even pitch up, pick up much. Doesn't help much at all. Because there are multiple layers to penetrate. Clouds, tree canopy, lower level floor. There's just no way around it. Almost anything could be hidden in a rainforest. Anyway, he said, the government's frustrated. And of course, the government is not the only interested party. Levine looked up sharply. Oh? Yeah, for some reason there's been a lot of interest in these animals. What sort of interest? Levine said as casually as he could. Last fall, the government issued a permit to a team of botanists from Berkeley to do an aerial survey of the jungle canopy in the Central Highlands. The survey had been going on for months when a dispute arose. A bill of bill for aviation fuel or something like that. Anyway, uh, a bureaucrat in uh, San Jose called Berkeley to complain, and Berkeley said they had never heard of the survey team. Meantime, the team fled the country. So nobody knew who they really were? 
No, last winter a couple of Swiss geologists showed up and they collected some gas samples from offshore islands as part of a study, they said, of volcanic activity in Central America. The offshore islands are all volcanic, and most of them are still active to some degree. So it seemed like a reasonable request. But it turned out the geologists really worked for an American genetics company called Biosyn, and they were looking for uh, large animals on the islands. Why would a biotech company be interested? Levine said. It makes no sense. Maybe not to you or me, Gutierrez said, but Biosyn's got a particularly un unsavory reputation. Their head of research is a guy named Louis Dodgson. Oh, yeah, Levine said, I know. He's the guy who ran that rabies vaccine test in Chile a few years back. The one where they, they exposed farmers to rabies but didn't tell them they were doing it. That's him. He also started test marketing a genetically engineered potato in supermarkets without telling anybody they were altered. Gave kids low-grade diarrhea. A couple of them ended up in hospital. After that, the company had to hire George Basilton to fix their image. Seems like everybody hires Basilton, Levine said. Gutierrez shrugged. The big-name university professors consult these days. It's part of the deal. Ian Basilton is a Regis Professor of Biology. The company needed him to clean up the mess because Dodgson has a habit of breaking the law. Dodgson has people on his payroll all around the world. Steals other companies, the research, the whole bit. They say Biosyn's the only genetics company with more lawyers than scientists. And why were they interested in Costa Rica? Levine asked. Gutierrez shrugged. I don't know, but the whole attitude toward research has changed, Richard. It's very noticeable here. Costa Rica as one of the richest ecologies in the world. Half a million species in 12 distinct environmental habitats, 5% of the species in the planet are represented here. This country has been a biological research center for years, and I can tell you, things have changed. In the old days, the people who came here were dedicated scientists with a passion to learn about something for its own sake. Hell monkeys, or Palestine wasps, or the Sombrilla plant. These people have chosen their field because they cared about it. They certainly weren't going to get rich. But now, everything in the biosphere is potentially valuable. Nobody knows where the next drug is coming from. So the drug companies fund all sorts of research. Maybe a bird egg is a protein that makes it waterproof. Maybe a spider produces a peptide that inhabits blood clotting. Maybe the waxy surface from a, of a fern contains a painkiller. It happens often enough that attitudes towards research has changed. People aren't studying the natural world anymore. They're mining it. It's a looter mentality. Anything new or unknown is automatically of interest, because it might have value. It might be worth a fortune. Gutierrez drained his beer. The world, he said, is turning upside down. And the fact is, a lot of people want to know what these aberrant animals represent and where they came from. The loudspeaker called Levine's flight. Both men stood up from the table. Gutierrez said, You keep all this to yourself? I mean, what you saw today? To be quite honest, Levine said, I don't know what I saw today. It could have been anything. Gutierrez grinned. Say fly, Richard. Take care of Marty. Departure His backpack slung over his shoulder, Levine walked towards the departure lounge. He turned to wave goodbye to Gutierrez, 
but his friend was already heading out the door, raising his arm to wave for a taxi. Levine shrugged and turned back. Directly ahead was a custom desk. Travellers lined up to have their passports stamped. He was booked on the night flight to San Francisco with a long stopover in Mexico City. Not many people were queuing up. He probably had time to call his office and leave word for his secretary, Linda, that he would be on the flight. And perhaps he thought he should call Malcolm. Looking round, he saw a row of phones marked ICT Telefonos International along the wall to his right. But there was only a few, and all were in use. He had better use a satellite phone in his backpack, he thought. As he swung the backpack off his shoulder, and perhaps it would be, he paused, frowning. He looked back at the wall. Four people were using the phones. The first was a blonde woman in shorts and a halter top, bouncing a young, sunburned child in her arms as she talked. Next to her stood a bearded man in a safari jacket who glanced repeatedly at his gold Rolex watch. Then there was a grey-haired, grandmotherly woman talking in Spanish, while her two full-grown sons stood by and nodded emphatically. And the last person was a helicopter pilot. He had removed his uniform jacket and was standing in short sleeves and tie. He was turned away, facing the wall, shoulders hunched. Levine moved closer and heard the pilot speaking in English. Levine set his backpack down and bent over it, pretending to adjust the straps while he listened. The pilot was still turned away from him. He heard the pilot say, No, no, Professor, it is not that way. No. Then there was a pause. No, the pilot said. I am telling to you, no. I am sorry, Professor Basilton, but this is not known. It is an island, but, uh, but which one? It, uh, we must wait again for more? No, 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 he lives tonight. No. I think he does not know anything. And, and no pictures. No, no, no. Uh, I understand. Adios. Levine ducked his head as the pilot walked briskly towards the laxa desk at the other end of the airport. What the hell? he thought. It is an island, but which one? How did they know it was an island? Levine himself was still not sure of that and he had been working intensively on these finds, day and night, trying to put it together. Where they had come from, and why it was happening. He walked around the corner out of sight, and pulled out the little satellite phone. He dialed it quickly, calling a number in San Francisco. The call went through rapidly, clicking as it linked with the satellite. It began to ring. There was a beep, and an electronic voice said, Please enter your access code. Levine punched in a six-digit number. There was another beep. The electronic voice said, Leave your message. I'm calling, Levine said, with the results of the trip. Single specimen, not in good shape. Location BB-17 on your map. That's far south, which fits all of the hypotheses. I wasn't able to make a precise identification before they burned the specimen, but my guess is that it was an ornithalist's. As you know, the animal is not on the list. A highly significant finding. He glanced around, but no one was near him. No one was paying attention. Furthermore, the lateral femur was cut in a deep gash. This is extremely disturbing. He hesitated, not wanting to say too much. And I am sending back a sample that required close examination. I also think some other people are interested. Anyway, whatever is going on down here is, is new, Ian. 
There hasn't been any specimen of for over a year. And now they're showing up again. Something new is happening. And we don't understand it at all. Oh, do we? Levine thought. He pressed the disconnect, turned the phone off and replaced it in the outer pocket of his backpack. Maybe, he thought, we knew more than we realised. He looked thoughtfully toward the departure gate. It was time to catch his flight. Palo Alto At 2am, Ed James pulled into the nearly deserted parking lot of the Marie Callenders and Carter Road. The black BMW was already there parked near the entrance. Through the windows he could see Dodgson sitting inside at a booth, his bland features frowning. Dodgson was never in a good mood. Right now he was talking to the heavy-set man alongside him and glancing at his watch. The heavy-set man was Batelton, the professor who appeared on television. James always felt relieved whenever Batelton was there. Dodgson gave him the creeps, but it was hard to imagine Batelton involved in anything shady. James turned off the ignition and twisted the rearview mirror, so he could see as he buttoned his shirt collar and pulled up his tie. He glimpsed his face in the mirror. A dishevelled, tired man with two days stubble of beard. What the hell? he thought. Why shouldn't he look tired? It was in the middle of the night. Dodgson always scheduled his meetings in the middle of the night, and always at this same damn Marie Callender restaurant. James never understood why. The coffee was awful, but then there was a lot he didn't understand. He picked up the manila envelope and got out of the car, slamming the door. He headed for the entrance, shaking his head. Dodgson had been paying him $500 a day for weeks now to follow a bunch of scientists around. At first, James had assumed it was some sort of industrial espionage, but none of the scientists worked for industry. They held university appointments in pretty dull fields, like that paleontologist Sattler whose speciality was prehistoric pollen grains. James had sat through one of her lectures at Berkeley and had barely been able to stay awake, slide after slide of little pale spheres that looked like cotton balls, while she nattered on about polysaccharide bonding angles and the companion Marstitrium boundary. Jesus, it was boring. Certainly not worth $500 a day, he thought. He went inside, blinking in the light, and walked over to the booth. He sat down, nodded to Dodgson and Baselton, and raised his hand to order coffee from the waitress. Dodgson glared at him. I haven't got all night, he said. Let's get started. Right, James said, lowering his hand. Fine, sure. He opened the envelope, began pulling out sheets and photos, handing them across the table to Dodgson as he talked. Alan Grant, paleontologist at Montana State. At the moment is on leave of absence, and now in Paris, lecturing on the latest dinosaur finds. Apparently he has some new ideas about tyrannosaurs being scavengers and... Never mind, Dodgson said. Go on. Ellen Sattler Raymond, James said, pushing across a photo. Botanist. Used to be involved with Grant. Now married to a physicist at Berkeley. And has a young son and daughter. She lectures half-time at the university. Spends the rest of her time at home, because... Go on, go on. Well, most of the rest are deceased. Donald Gennaro, lawyer, died of uh, dysentery on a business trip. Dennis Nedry, integrated computer systems, are also deceased. John Hammond, who studied international genetic technologies, died while visiting the company's research facility in Costa Rica. Hammond had a granddaughter with him at the time. The kids live in there with their mother back east, and 
Anybody contact them? Anybody from Injun? Uh, no, no contact. The boy has started college and the girl is in prep school. And Injun filed uh, a Chapter 11 protection after Hammond died. It's been in the courts ever since. Uh, the hard assets are finally being sold off. During the last two weeks, as a matter of fact. Baselton spoke for the first time. Is uh, Site B involved in that sale? James looked blank. Site B? Yeah, has anybody talked to you about Site B? No, I've never heard of it before. What is it? If you hear anything about Site B, Baselton said, we want to know. Sitting beside Baselton in the booth, Dodgson thumbed through the pictures and data sheets, then tossed them aside impatiently. He looked up at James. What else have you got? That's all, Dr. Dodgson. That's all? Dodgson said. What about Malcolm? And what about Levine? Are they still friends? James consulted his notes. I'm not sure. Baselton frowned. Not sure, he said. What do you mean you're not sure? Uh, Malcolm met Levine in Santa Fe Institute, James said. They spent time together there a couple of years ago, but Malcolm hasn't been back to Santa Fe recently. He's taken a visiting lectureship at Berkeley in the uh, biological department. He teaches mathematical models of evolution, and he seems to have lost contact with Levine. They uh, have a falling out? Uh, maybe. I was told they argued about Levine's expedition. What expedition? Dodgson said, leaning forward. Levine's been planning some kind of expedition for a year or so. He's ordered special vehicles from the company called Mobile Field Systems. It's a small operation in Woodside, run by a guy named Jack Thorne. Thorne outfits jeeps and trucks for scientists doing field research. Scientists in Africa and Sichuan and Chile all swear by them. Malcolm knows about this expedition? Well, he must. He's gone to Thorne's place occasionally. Every month or so. And of course Levine's been going there almost every day. And that's how he got thrown in jail. Thrown in jail? Baselton said. Yeah, James said, glancing at his notes. Let's see, uh, February 10th, Levine was arrested for driving 120 in a 50 zone. Right in front of Woodside Junior High. The judge impounded his Ferrari, yanked his license and gave him community service. Basically ordered him to teach a class at school. Baselton smiled. Richard Levine teaching junior high. <laughs> I'd love to see that. He's been uh, pretty conscientious. Of course, he's spending time in Woodside anyway with Thorne. That is, until he left the country. Uh, when did he leave the country? Dodgson said. Two days ago, he went to Costa Rica. Short trip. He was due back early this morning. And uh, where is he now? I don't know. I'm afraid uh, it's going to be hard to find out. Uh, why's that? James hesitated and coughed because he was on the passenger manifest on the flight from Costa Rica, but he wasn't on the plane when it landed. My contact in Costa Rica says he checked out in his hotel in San Jose before the flight and never went back. Didn't take any other flight out of the city. So, uh, for the moment, I'm afraid that Richard Levine has disappeared. There was a long silence. Dodgson sat back in his booth, hissing between his teeth. He looked at Baselton, who shook his head. Dodgson very carefully picked up all the sheets of paper, tapped them on the table, making a neat stack. He slipped them back into the manila envelope and handed the envelope to James. Now listen, you stupid son of a bitch, Dodgson said. There is only one thing I want from you now. It's very simple, you listening? James swallowed. 
I'm listening. Dodgson leaned across the table. Find him, he said.